Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My guest today is John. John, you told me that you've done that, right? You yes. have built financial freedom in 10 years or less, right? So we're going to hear your story. <laughs> Definitely. And it's not 10 years or less. Maybe that's because I chose to live in an expensive part of the country that is Silicon Valley. So it right. took me a lot longer. Right. And of course, I was not as frugal as I could be in the right. initial days, and I still am not. So it took me a slightly longer 12 years, but I think it'll be an interesting episode for your listeners. So you were born and raised in India. That is correct. Right? So tell us your story of how you ended up in the United States, and then tell us a little bit about your financial freedom journey. Sure. So I was born in India, and I think the advantage of being born in India is the fact that it has a pretty good demographic in terms of the urban area speaking English, so at least that outlet is there. But I think also in the fact that I was born in a stable family where my parents were always focused on education ensured the fact that I was always keeping up with my grades, making sure that while the other kids were out partying or having fun, I was like, oh, let me do my homework, let me keep up with the studies. Because I think with India and most of our other Asian countries, which are highly populated, you either need to be at the top 10 or 20% if you want to be somewhere in life, or you just like stagnate and kind of like live along. And So are you the doctor or are you the lawyer? Which one are you? Oh, neither. Actually, I'm the engineer. <laughs> oh, you're the engineer and your brother's the doctor. No, actually, <laughs> the weird part is he took science as well. <laughs> and then he came along into the similar kind of fields. Right. But yeah, right. I think, yeah, those are the similar kind of areas which you can go, a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, and those are kind of the respected professions. Because way back when I was in India and growing up, it was a very closed economy, I would say. And these were the professions which were more paying well. There was a government sector and that was it, but the private sector was not really organized or opened up. But recently when I went back, like last year or the year before, I saw that the economy has totally opened up. Now you can get a job in marketing or something. What do you mean well? by closed economy? You mean that, that how, do you, how do you mean? So there was not a lot of foreign direct investment. So okay. you'd not have a multinational coming in. You would have more or less the local companies. So your earning potential would be limited. Your career path would be limited. And those kind of factors would inhibit how much you could earn, how much you could save, how much you could invest, and how free could you live. So the idea is previously, if you wanted to work in marketing, for example, you could maybe parlay that into a job with a local firm, but there wasn't a big upside potential. That is correct. At the end of the day, it was going to be a relatively small Indian firm. But now you can go into marketing and you work, work with a big global multinational and have massive career. Exactly. Potential. Understood. Right. Understood. Okay. So keep going. Sure. So I think that was an important factor. And both my parents initially were working. And at some point in time, my mother decided it makes sense to actually work with us at home. And she actually decided to quit her job and then work and make sure we got our studies done, our good grades. So that journey continued. And then after that, I did my engineering studies. And in India? In India. Is it common that Indian mothers would choose to stay home with the children? So I think it's a mix, honestly. Uh, not many would stay. Uh, it depends on the circumstances and if they are able to contribute to the education. Luckily, my dad had a government job and my mom had a government job too. And at some point in time, because of... So we were never rich. We just had a middle-class lifestyle. Uh, mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, to be honest, even like we would get clothes only for our birthday and then Christmas maybe. And 
not not a huge birthday party nothing other than your relatives calling to just wish you for your birthday right. but that was it right? right so we never i wouldn't say we were starving or went hungry but we had a pretty decent life but not a crazy extravagant life so okay Keep yeah going. so with that said i i think at that point in time i decided okay it makes sense for me to do engineering the good part about education back in india is it is merit based in the sense that if i have 100 seats available for engineering 50% would be available at a very cheap rate the other 50% would be available at eight times the cost so you would have other students subsidizing you and you need to then figure out based on your grades which category you fall in so whether you fall in the higher category of payment or the lower category of payment and at some point in time i said i don't want that debt on my although my parents were willing to but share that and they were like okay you can go ahead and choose whatever you want i was mm-hmm. like okay it makes more sense for me to take the effort to then work on my grades to make sure that on a merit based they have an entrance exam so make sure i have those necessary grades so that i'm in the top of the class and thereby i have my choice of the free seat or right. what is called the lower payment seat and then have someone else subsidize me so i think in that factor i was lucky and that was more or less my engineering background is engineering school is that kind of analogous to the american school 18 to 22 type of thing correct that, okay. that is very analogous to okay. the american school so you graduated with a bachelor's degree in engineering yes. at 22 right then and then after that i decided to work in the local uh, computer companies over there for a year or two and then incidentally when i was working over there i thought it made sense for me to work on projects which they were doing for a multinational firm like ge as i was working on those projects i gained enough knowledge and expertise that one of the big five consulting firms of the us uh, wanted to bid on similar projects to do for that firm and then i was like okay it makes sense for me to apply and see if i can try my luck over there and fortunately i got through the interviews and all of it and they were like hey why don't you actually come here and see how it works for it and i was like ha huh. no one in my family before that had actually left india mm-hmm. uh, More, more or less what my parents had done was actually move from the villages to the city of bombay but that was it right. nothing more than that and so it was a big step the only thing i knew about the us i'd never visited it was only watching episodes of friends on television but that, <laughs> uh, that, that's it nothing more than that and i was like okay let me see what i can do so i had a job offer in hand and then wait a second on friends no one had jobs they just sat around and did nothing <laughs> so why did you get a job well chandler <laughs> in america chandler has had some jobs so <laughs> Right. And, and Ross had a decent enough yeah. job so I think every now and then they would yeah. show them at work when it when it fit into the plot line it's the funniest thing about soap operas and and sitcoms and such is is it's just i mean it doesn't parallel life in any way my wife and i laugh about it how you never see people working you never see you just it's a totally different foreign thing right yeah so give going but, but at, at least you. the lifestyle i think yeah. helped me understand okay oh this is what happens there are coffee shops people go in right, right. and sit around talk around true. yes <laughs> uh yeah because for me it was all a foreign concept we had never i never even left the country although we had traveled extensively within the country never mm-hmm. left the country so i was like okay so i have a job offer then how much money do i have and then finally had just $1000 cash in my pocket and i said okay let me take the shot and come over here and see how it goes And the scary part is you'd been able to save $1000 working in India. Yes. Okay. And and that was partially between I would say $500 and then mm-hmm. $500 from my parents and then I was like okay let me take this cash and let me take a job offer and see how it goes and then I landed over here but that was all I landed with. Do you have any idea how much your parents were earning in their government jobs at the time about that time? What would be their standard pay for I, a government worker? I 
did not have a good idea and in fact i don't do even now okay i think we talked about finances in general but not the specific figures okay so you came to the united states with how much in your pocket then just thousand dollars thousand dollars and where did you land so I landed on the East Coast in Connecticut. Okay. And I was there. I was like, huh, I hope I have enough money and they pay me on time in the next 15 days because A, I signed a lease for like $500 rent because I will soon run out of money and B, then I don't have money for a plane ticket back home. And this is kind of a, it's a big five consulting firm, but then also you have to re- remember that this is kind of the time frame where firms like Arthur Anderson just suddenly went belly up and then right. it's... Yeah, it's scary. So that was a big risk, I would say, looking back. And I was like, maybe I was a little crazy taking that chance. But I said, okay, let me come here. And then it was not easy at that point in time because everything, like even buying a cell phone or needing to sign a lease, people want social security, people want credit history. And I had none of that other than like a job offer. And even opening a bank account was not easy. So I think I had to go through all the struggles and that's when I started becoming interested in finance because in India at that point in time, at least credit cards were absolutely no, no, no one had credit cards to be honest. Uh, so did all of that and then tried to slowly go on the internet, learn things. Even back home, we did not have good internet. In fact, growing up, we did not even have a telephone in the house. It was so uncommon. If you have to use a telephone, you would go to like in London, you see these telephones along the street. You wouldn't mm-hmm. typically need to go there, put a coin in and dial someone, but we no one had telephones at home. So that's kind of how we were living. So did the company, the, the Big Five Consulting Company, did they offer any kind of special services for you since you were a new immigrant? Or do they just say, come and be at work on Monday and we'll pay you in two weeks? Yeah, they had kind of sent me some documents, but in terms of okay orientation and how right. you would acclimate yourself to the US but not a lot of onboarding i would say or say that okay you can be here for a month you can get used to it and then start working after a month after you have everything set up right did um did you have family or friends in connecticut or were you i had alone? no one so i was the first of my family to leave the country so how did you find an apartment to live in Oh, and so before I moved over here, when the company told me, oh, this is where you'd be working, I looked online and uh, looked at places which could rent. And that's where I found, okay, there is an apartment nearby because I don't even know how to drive at that point in time when I come to Mm -hmm. the country, right? So I was like, okay, there's something walking distance. Let me reach out to these landlords and see who will accept me. So I- looking on Craigslist? Yes. Okay. So in a $500 a month apartment in Connecticut, was it a slum? Was it adequate? It what was adequate because I would say not say it was in the center. It was not something like Hartford or something. It was mm-hmm. way out in the countryside. Okay, got it. Okay, just because it's interesting. One of the things I'm, I'm, as you know, being right. a long time listener to the show, I'm always fascinated in immigrant stories, right? Because it's almost the perfect starting fresh, which is basically what you're talking about. For those of us who were born and raised in the United States, you kind of have one way of thinking, right? but immigrants have a totally different way of thinking. And I'm always amazed at how you wind up with immigrant communities and you wind up with all the Nigerians live in this apartment complex or the Indians have this, and how so many people who are earning low wages, right. you, we'll get to your wages, you weren't earning low wages, but how many people starting with nothing figure out how to live in very expensive cities. And it's, but it's a mystery to me right. because it's not... A, I mean, I, it's not 
I've thought about it and I, I think it's possible, but it's hard for those of us who are not used to finding those deals and negotiating those right. those those things to know how to do it. For for me, if I were going to go to Connecticut and I were just kind of the normal Joshua, not the radical Joshua, right? Like you just look at certain types of places that are what you're accustomed to, and you wind up in the automatic fifteen hundred dollar a month range. Like that's right. the comfortable middle class range, but yet the world is not that way, and. And I've talked to immigrants from all over the place who were able to find the deals. That's why I'm interested in the details. Yeah. So you rented an apartment, you got a cell phone, and you went to work. I went to work, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so then after two weeks, they paid you and you said, okay, now what do I do with this check? <laughs> now, now, now what do I do with this check? Yes. Yeah, so uh, it was actually a direct deposit, to be honest, right. at that point right. in time. So you've at least been able to get an account. Sorry. <laughs> by the, by that time, I, I able to get an account, but I still had no credit card right. at all. And at that point in time, I did not even know about the concept of secured credit card because mm -hmm. I was researching just the basics of utility, cell phone, and I did not even think about credit card at that point in time. So I was like, okay, and I would use my debit card everywhere I went. And this continued for more than a year and a half for two years, I was just using my debit card everywhere. How did the process of getting a work visa function? So the company which sponsored me actually uh, applied for a H-1B visa, mm -hmm. and then I had to go to the consulate, get it stamped, and then come on an H-1B visa. Okay, and they were used to sponsoring tech workers and, and knowledgeable right. engineers, yeah. So uh, do you remember your starting salary at that point? I, I think it would be 50000 Okay, yeah, around mm -hmm. that range. So continue the money story then. <laughs> sure. So then after that, uh, the good part about after I got kind of stable, seeing that the, I'm acclimated to the U.S. lifestyle, I still didn't know how to drive and I still don't know about credit cards or something, but I started trying to research about finance and how do I invest this money? What do I do with this money? The company had options like 401k, but I was like, I don't know how long I'm going to be here. What do I do if I need to leave the country or if the company goes belly up? What do I do with the money? So I just said, okay, I'm not even going to opt in the 401k. And back, looking back, that was the worst decision ever. Uh, not so much for the tax savings, but the fact that the company used to offer a 50% match. And I'm like, oh my God, I just wasted all the free money there. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I really needed the money. I could have used it, but I, uh, yeah, it is what it is. So right. you can only know that much. And then, uh, yeah. Uh, and it's hard. The hard part about, I think, the US system is that you would have coworkers who are nice. They would chit chat with you at work, but not a lot of them would be open or willing to talk about finances. And I think that's where I'm more attracted to the personal finance community because people are open. Some may be anonymously blogging, but at least people talk, share their finances, or at least educate other people. Whereas if you go to a typical American workplace, and even in this day and age where I live in Silicon Valley, people would be like not very open with talking about their finances. Right. Whereas if you look back in India, where I was working for the one or two years, people would not only share a high level range of their salary, but also, hey, I'm kind of investing in this. I'm planning to buy this apartment. What do you think? They would bounce ideas off each other and kind of help you figure out what you're doing. So mm -hmm. I think that's, I don't know what it is with America, but a lot of the American workplaces, absolutely, they will discuss other stuff like they will discuss sports they'll discuss politics but they will never discuss money it's a very taboo subject do you know i wonder if i wonder what it's like on other cultures i wonder if there's something unique about the american culture versus right. the indian culture and why i don't have any knowledge of that it doesn't seem wise to me to talk about money in a professional <laughs> space i wouldn't do it right um but i don't know if it's just cultural or if it's if there's good defensible reasons um 
So lay out then the arc of your career um, as far as how what happened in your career. You started at fifty thousand dollars with sure. a big five consulting company, right? And you were doing software engineering, software engineering. Okay. And at that point in time, I also wanted to meet my dual goal of travel across the country. And what I did is I asked them, hey, every time I'm on a new project, instead of like sticking in the same location, can I pick different clients? And they were like, yes, you can obviously pick different clients. So what I did is I moved all along the East Coast, then I moved to the Midwest, and then I moved finally to the West Coast. And all along this journey, I was also trying to make sure I keep my career up. And in fact, when I launched my blog, and I still see this quite common in Silicon Valley where people don't take care of their career, and that's a major factor which I see can help you achieve financial freedom. Most of like, you can only frugal so much and uh, cut cost to a certain limit, but your expansion potential with money is unlimited if you keep earning more and more. So that's why one of the first blog posts which I wrote was about how to earn more money. So basically network with other people, including recruiters. So then I got my LinkedIn profile up and running. I talked to other people. I tried to figure out, okay, if I jump companies, what do I do? The fact that I had a visa made it more challenging than other people who were American-born citizens that you could just get up and leave any point in time because to transfer a visa takes like an act of Congress. It's just like, (laughs) it's a long lot of process. So it's definitely not easy. And then you have to deal with the government agencies and then you can anytime get queries and then you have to answer it you need a lawyer so it's it's difficult so at least within the company i stayed there for six years but i did try to make sure okay i figure out with my boss what's important to them what would help them take on additional responsibility see how i could get promoted internally within the organization and in fact go to some locations or hard projects where no one wanted to go so my last assignment in fact was in minnesota and no one wants to be in 40 below freezing but i was like okay sure why not if it gives me more money and more promotion and access to the higher ups why not i'll just take it up and i did that for two and a half years so i think taking on those opportunities at work definitely helped me reach a place where i could then say okay now i'm much more comfortable i have grown enough of my bank balance and at this point in time on my financial journey i'm just like kind of saving money squirreling it up i'm not even investing it because i don't know what to do and what i need it for but i'm kind of just like okay i'm just saving what i need i spend it and I was not living very frugally because at some point in time, like you said, after a year or so, then I graduated to the 1500 right. apartment. Right. And then I'm like, okay, I should like live a little better lifestyle. So that's where I, I totally was. Uh, not spendthrift, but at least trying to say, okay, I need to buy a car. What do I need to do? I need to take driving lessons. So I took driving lessons, bought a new car, brand new. It, it was a reasonable purchase. Uh, I would say a Toyota. So it's at least definitely, I know it'll last me for a while, but new car and then it was like oh a chunk of my savings is gone but now it is our mobility and i have ability to interact with other people and socialize so kind of went along that path and then when i was in minnesota actually i was contacted by a company in silicon valley saying hey do you want to come and work with us and i was like wondering should i make this move but then i realized that for my career it makes good sense to be in the tech space in the tech jobs where are all in silicon valley so then i decided to move over to silicon valley and since then i've been moving companies every two or three years Mm -hmm. and that's what i recommend to everyone no matter what Uh, i mean loyalty is overrated as long as you're working you can have that in other aspects of your relationship but when you're working you should definitely see okay can i move to the next company and it's always easier to get a higher raise when you move jobs to a new company versus no matter how well you perform your current company is not going to give you a 20 30 percent raise so 
So chase, trace out your income history from starting at 50,000 a year up through today or, or the last job or whenever you're willing to, to share. What were the, what were the increases like? Uh, so I would say the increases were roughly 10 to 15%. And I, at my last jobs, I would say I'm roughly slightly over 300 mm-hmm. in terms of total compensation. And the reason that you're valuable to your employees, have you done other studies, other degrees or credentialization? Or uh, what makes you so? What makes you valuable to your employees? What makes you more va- valuable to your employers today than ten years ago when you first arrived? I would say experience is more valuable in the tech industry versus credentialing. I tried mm-hmm. to do some uh, definitely project program management courses, and these some of them were sponsored by my employers at different points in time, but none of them involved full time quitting work. Mm-hmm. There were some programs which were, of course, marketed saying MBA and all of it, but then I did the ROI on it, and I'm like, I'll be out of the job market for two years. Right. I'll be not earning. I'll be paying this humongous fees, Bill, which right. is like crazy to me. And then I was like, okay, it doesn't make sense. So I kept continuing in the organizations and kept moving and maybe studying a little more on the newer technologies and then trying to apply it and trying to be more valuable to the employers. At some point in time, even in, in the tech industry, you may know all your technologies, but then your people, your interpersonal skills count a lot more. And that's where I think people are able to then Assess if you're a valuable employee, can you move up the management chain? So at my last jobs, I'm no longer doing coding hands-on, but actually managing teams, managing larger programs, budgets of millions of dollars. And I think that's where you can kind of move either in technical capacity or in a managerial capacity, but kind of upward mobility. Absolutely. So how did you come across the ideas of financial independence? So the weird part is at some point in time when I'm working in Silicon Valley, to be honest, is a brutal place. Uh, it looks great. Like you watch those episodes on HBO where, yeah, and, and most of those are actually true. But the fact that they offer you free food, they offer you laundry on site, they have a notary and everything on site means that they want to actually live on campus. They don't want you to have the thought process that I leave campus. And the reason for that is they expect you to kind of be working. So if you are doing only 60 hours a week, you're kind of a slacker compared to your coworkers. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think at some point in time I was burnt out and thinking, wouldn't it be nice? I'm like looking at my expenses and thinking, I don't, I have this money stocked up, saved. I'm like kind of investing somewhat haphazardly buying individual stocks, listening to Jim Cramer and figuring out what to do. But I was like, I need to now know how to actually manage my money, how to invest it and what I need to do in order to get out of it. And one of the things which also was a trigger point was I remember clearly a meeting where my VP was suddenly one week saying, oh, my sister is not well and she's very sick. And I was like, huh, are you going to go and visit her? And she's like, I would like to, but we have this important delivery coming up, uh, maybe after that. And then a week later in the meeting, I was in the same meeting and she got a phone call and then she said, I have to take this. And she went outside and she came back saying, hey, my sister passed away and I think that was a turning point and I was thinking you might be a VP earning like more than half a million or close to a million and yet if someone is telling you when and where you need to show up to work and you don't have the freedom to get up and take care of your loved ones, then I'm like, you are not free. You are like a high paid slave. You are still a slave no matter what, if you're high paid or not. Right. So that's, that's, exa- that's exactly what the term wage slave means. Right. That's why we use the term wage slave. You know, if you were a, a, a slave in the era of chattel slavery, mm-hmm. you had to work right. a certain amount. Your boss would tell you what to do and you had to do it. But your boss also provided 
everything for you. They provided housing, they provided mm -hmm. food. Uh, and so the boss had a responsibility to provide for you because otherwise his investment right. in you as a slave, what he wouldn't get his money back uh, from investing in you as a slave. Today, there are many people who are wage slaves, that they are responsible and fully beholden to do certain work. But now, instead of the boss providing you with a house as part of your compensation package, you have to earn money to go and get a mortgage to pay for your house. Right. And instead of your boss providing you with food, you have to provide it with, with food. And yet, if you don't ever accumulate capital, you can never buy your freedom. Um, you wind up being a wage slave. And that's exactly, uh, that's exactly what the term means. And I can't think of a better example than than what right. you just said when you can't even go and you have you don't have the autonomy and freedom to say i'm going to go and visit a dying relative right because you have to deliver for the boss you have to deliver the big project yes right? uh, so and that's even at a higher level right you think oh initially when you start off as a software engineer you think oh one day if i reach vp level that'll be a great dream right. come true but then you're like oh even people at that level at the vp or senior vp level even at the c level they're still beholden to right. someone else right yeah, that's where, you know, you think about the ideal career path. And there is certainly, there certainly can be freedom that comes as you go up, right. up, the, up the career path. But company culture makes a big difference. And I think there are companies that have a culture that allows people more, more freedom. It may be harder to find a Silicon Valley, maybe not, I don't know. But if you're in a company that has a culture of overwork in that way, then you don't feel the choice to do it. And uh, I don't know what you do except say, I'm going to go choose a company with a different culture or I'm going to be the CEO of my company and uh, have a different different perspective. But certainly right. it does make a big difference. True. And I think the fact that you are so dependent on your living from the wages you get every month and you think oh if my wages get stopped for six months or one right. year i mean ideally you could just be like i'm not going to show up to work and in right. the next six two months to one year i'll find some other gig if i don't find anything right. but i think the fact that you're so addicted to that monthly income coming in and mm -hmm. that you need that to live for your daily life i think that makes it harder to just suddenly right. say i just don't care and to stereotype i think it can be especially hard for people in environments like silicon valley because there are very high hard costs right your rent is high your mortgage payment is huge but then there are also lifestyle costs that are considered to be normal that would make someone who's involved in that lifestyle feel very embarrassed if they stopped the right. things they wear the things they eat the things they do the things they drink just it's a culture where at least what's popularized and what is is common among the glitterati it's a culture of high embedded expenses and it, i think it's the same it's not just silicon valley it's, a lot of it is the big city culture the you know the afternoon Starbucks, you know, you're a weirdo if you don't partake in, right. in, in all of it. And so when you sit down, I've done the analysis for workers in those situations sometimes, unless you're a real curmudgeon, you know, and you're totally comfortable just being, doing your own thing and right. you're known as that, which isn't necessarily good for your career path, right? It, it doesn't, it doesn't endear you to your coworkers. Coworkers don't really want to step up and say, yeah, you should, you should, um, promote Bob because Bob just gets, Bob, no, nobody yeah. likes Bob because right. Bob makes them feel bad. Right. <laughs> so there's a balance there. But in those kind, in the kind of the, the, the big city, um, corporate, high level, professional culture, right. which is largely of young people, single people, there's, a, there's so many embedded expenses with the work lifestyle 
that when people come out of that, like if they lose a job, um, they don't know how to, they often just struggle with how do I even adjust? How do I live <laughs> in yeah, this place true. without my daily latte to, 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 to beat the, 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 the stereotype? True. It, it's really tough. Yeah. And, and it's not making it up. Like these are tough. This is a cultural expectation yes. um, that, that people have to figure out how to deal with elegantly. Right. And I think the f most important part is the fixed cost. At some point in time, the variable cost, like the lattes, you can just eliminate, but the fixed cost is what gets you. So you need to figure out a way to make sure your fixed costs are at least right. stable or you have them in control. Right. So I want to talk about the strategies that you have used and are using. But so from the time that you landed in the U.S., to the time when after learning about finance, you came to a point where you said, I think I'm financially independent. How many years was that? So at that point in time, I did not even, I, I, it was 12 years, but at that point in time, like I told you my the VP experience, mm -hmm. but I was not even at that point in time figuring out if I'm financially independent or not. I, all I knew was I need to get out right. and I need to figure out an alternative path where I have the option that I can say no to them. And I'm like, what is the amount of money and how do I know that? Right. Because uh, like I mentioned, my parents, was a, were government employees, so they would get a pension, whereas over here, I'm a private sector person, so I have nothing to fall back on. It's not that I know, okay, this is the amount I'll get every month, and I'm like, what is the amount I need per month to live on? And at that point in time, I'm not even tracking my expenses, so I have right. no idea how much is my expenses. I have money, I know it's in the bank, it's sure. invested, but I don't even know how much that return throws off. So that's when I got interested in personal finance, started looking at multiple things, and that's when I also came across your podcast, and mm -hmm. then, uh, I think one of the first podcasts I listened to was Early Retirement Extreme. Right. And he's based out of San Francisco, uh, Jacob Fischer, right? And I was mm -hmm. like, this guy's crazy if he can do that in San Francisco, living on like 20,000 or, or something lower than that, I mm -hmm. believe, at that point in time. I was like, but this is really fascinating. So then I went back, I listened to some more episodes, I went and read some personal finance blogs, and then I slowly figured out, okay, at least as a rule of thumb, you can use the 4% rule, mm -hmm. you can accumulate 25x your annual expenses and assets and have that kind of thing. So that gave me a roadmap and said, okay, if I hit this number, then I should consider myself financially independent. It might not line up perfectly. Life may throw things at you, but at least I know, okay, it's kind of a high level, some safety comfort factor. And then I can be like, walk into my next job and say, hey, I don't care. Because uh, although I'm financially independent, my last job, which I then said, okay, I don't want to work anymore. And I was thinking, should I work or should I not work? And I had an offer from Amazon and a bunch of other companies, Silicon Valley organizations. And then one organization, which is not Silicon Valley, but still based in that neighborhood. So it's not tech, but it's still based in that neighborhood, gave me an offer. And I was like, should I take this up? Because A, it's going to be less stress. And B, more importantly, I like the people I interacted with all through the interview process. But then the fact that the company was a little far away and I have to take BART, which is a local train over there and uh, connectivity in Silicon Valley through the local trains is not the best. So I was like, uh, I was honest and I said, hey, I really like y'all. Uh, I might decide to come and work for y'all, but I don't even want to even commute to work every day. And they were like, you seem that you have done really well in your career. You interviewed well, everyone on the team likes you. You don't even need to come to work physically every day. You can just come in once a week, make sure your meetings are on that day and then work remote for the rest of the days. And I was like, that is amazing. I mean, I would never ever get that option in most of the other companies. And this is where I thought, okay, this is really freeing because A, I don't need the money. So I could actually go to them in the interview process and be honest and say, I don't want your job. Right. But if I don't need to come to work, then I would definitely take this job. And then they are like, okay, 
Why not? Because if I was not financially free, I would be afraid of even asking or making that demand right in the interview process. So I think that's where it helped me. And then I was like, oh, this is a nice gig because commute time saved is amazing. I oh, mean, yeah. that is the biggest stress of everyone. Even if it's like a 30 minute commute one way, it's one hour of your life wasted. And then you have to deal with traffic. Hey, hey people can listen stress. to radical personal finance. It's not wasted. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, oh, I was like, oh, that's amazing. So, right, right. No, it definitely. It's a lifestyle th- uh, improvement for sure. So you you think that, is it accurate to say that your personal, personal psychology, the, the strength and the confidence that you had um, from being financially independent right. helped you to be a much stronger negotiator and to develop something that was a good suit, a good fit for you? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think you put it right. And yeah. I think the fact that you are coming from a position of strength also gives them the confidence that you can deliver it because if you are through the interview process kind of wanting that job a lot of times they were like ha why does this person really want the job and they are more hesitant to give it to you but when you're like you don't need to be rude but you're like I don't need the job but if you are offering me then these are my conditions it kind of puts you as an equal on the table right it's no superior inferior kind of relationship but rather you're just talking as equals to your employer and saying hey this is what I need can you give it to me if not then that's fine so I want to I want to highlight that for the listeners and just draw three three lessons three points from that um, because it is true. It does make a difference. Right. And just negotiating from a position of strength is, is hugely important, whether it's in romantic relationships, whether it's in um, job relationships, just in almost anything, right. just understanding, being confident. So number one, the ultimate confidence is true financial independence. I don't have to work. I can be happy living on my portfolio. That's the perfect, that's the ideal place to get to. Right. So that's number one. That could be, it is an important goal. And I think the reason that's an important goal also is because it's going to be hard to know your personal motivations if you don't, uh, if you really want to keep working until you recognize you have the option of doing something else. Right. Number two is, if you're not financially independent, it doesn't mean you can't have that confidence. So the important thing is never to get a job when you need one, but always to get a job when you don't. Right. So you don't want to be fired, laid off, you know, in the middle of a recession, desperate for work. You want to be interviewing when you're happily employed and you're just trading up for the next one. You've, you've talked about yes. that. Every few years, you're always keeping your lines open with recruiters. You're building your personal brand in the industry. You're making sure that you're regularly getting offers. You entertain all offers, but then you're always in a position of strength because hey i'm happily employed right right now but hey if you can make me a better offer i'm willing to consider it and i don't want to move across the country but if you put enough money in the pot i'm open to it so you don't actually have to have any money to be in a position of strength if you have already established yourself you've got a job and you're continually working on upgrading so that's the second point i'd like to make and then the third point is any person can who's who's any person who's spending less than they're making can very quickly cultivate enough personal financial security that they can negotiate from the position of strength. All right. $10,000 for a lot of people changes the things. $50,000, $100,000 for the average person changes people if you'll let it hit your psychology. Because if you have uh, if you need a hundred, if you have $100,000 in the bank right. and you need $30,000, $40,000 to live on, which is a reasonable budget that any person could live on in mm-hmm. the United States without yes. suffering, you have two and a half, three years of, of, of wiggle room. So you can very reliably say, I don't need a job right now. And you can 
adopt that psychological strength going into job negotiations and such as you work your way towards ultimate financial independence. And then once you get into that higher level of career orientation, where you've said no to the things that you are not good at, you've said no to the things you don't like doing, and you've said no to the toxic environments that you don't want to be a part of, then you can say yes to the things that you're good at. Say yes to the jobs that you like doing and say yes to the jobs that come with a really good environment. And those are the kinds of jobs and career options that frankly, you probably won't want to leave unless something changes. And that's why when you pursue that strategy, then the wealth just continues to multiply because you could retire anytime, but you don't feel any pressing need to. And the job provides a useful application of your skills and abilities in the world that leads to fulfillment, leads to contribution to the world, leads to making a difference and continues to radically transform your financial life. Yeah. And I think the last point is definitely important, Joshua, because to be honest, I'm still working. But although I don't need to work, right? And that's where I think the difference is that I can still go in, be productive, do my best for my employer, do the best for myself, but at the same time, live stress-free. Anytime I need a vacation, I can just take vacation. Like in December, I took a six-week vacation, went all over Asia, traveled to Cambodia and saw different cultures because travel is really important to me. Again, I'm planning to go to Mexico and then do again more trips to Canada, China. So I can take long vacations and my employer is totally fine with that. And that gives me the person uh, like a strength position where I can actually go in and say, okay, this is what I want. What do I do to achieve this? And I think at some point in time, employers as well, when they see an employee doing well, they are able to negotiate, work those things out and able to create a good conducive environment. So I think it's both ways and you need to be in that position to create that environment. Absolutely. So you haven't mentioned marriage, children. Have you lived as a single man through this whole process? Yes. Okay. So how do you think that has affected your financial independence journey? To be honest, I don't think it would be very different. Uh, And to give you some background, uh, I I did mention my parents had the initial part of education, but now what I do is I ask them to I feel guilty because in the initial years when I moved to the US, it was just me calling them with a calling card on a phone, speaking to them 10 minutes every week. Uh, And then as technology improved, both in India and over here, we kind of kept in touch over Skype and kept doing that. But once I got financially independent, moved to Silicon Valley, I felt confident enough saying, hey, why don't you guys come and stay with me for six months and live with me? So now the arrangement which my parents do is they come and live with me for six months and then they live back home in India uh, six months just because most of the family and relatives which they grew up with are still in Bombay. So that keeps that close connection. And when they are here with me for six months, it's really me taking care of all of their expenses. So, and I already have like a three bed, two bath house in Silicon Valley. So it's not that I'm living in a mm-hmm. studio apartment. So right. I think as far as living costs go, it's not drastically different being a single person versus being in a relationship in the sense that you still need to provide for three people. Right. Uh, expenses. So I think that's kind of where I would have. In Silicon Valley, I think the most important part is housing expense. And as long as you have that under control, you are good. What strategies have you used to moderate your expenses while living in Silicon Valley? One part which helped me definitely was I was lucky during the crash. There were certain areas of Silicon Valley which the prices never budged, but there were other pockets uh, in the Bay Area itself where prices cratered. Uh, And they cratered by 30% or so, and that was enough for me to say, okay, this is the time where I actually need to get in the market and buy something. 
And my timing was a bit off, to be honest, because I bought my house in 2013 when the market had already risen, but not as crazy as it is back now to pre-peak level. Uh, but then I also had some crazy investment ideas which work like I invested in financials and as it kept going down I kept doubling down doubling down until finally Bear Stearns and Lehman happened and they were like oh I should I I actually started buying Citigroup from $12 $8 and then I'm like oh at $5 it seems like a greater buy all in and then I'm like oh now it's $2 then I'm like okay I'm borrowing money and then I'm like okay, investing and then when it is below a dollar i'm like i'm really scared now i don't know what to do but by then i'm like all in luckily i think that bet paid off and i managed to get enough money which i could then use for down payment so i think taking those strategic risk helped as well and i was able to and i clearly remember in hindsight it's easy to say oh everyone should have bought a house during the crash but when I was over there and I talked to my coworker saying, hey, are you guys buying? Because we all were in a similar situation. We'd talk, oh, our rents are going up every week. To have a one-bedroom apartment in Silicon Valley is $3,000 rent. What do we do? And we keep discussing this and then the market crashes. But when the market crashes, no one was willing to step in and buy. So it does take a lot of courage to actually say, okay, I'm going to make a decision and like, let me go in, let me put the down payment and then see what happens. It's just a risk you have to take. So I think that risky bet paid off for me as well. So luckily I have a house which I bought at a lower price. The best part about California though is the property prices are pegged to the buy price. So your property prices just track inflation. And if you buy it at a low price, it just is low priced property taxes for the rest of your life. So yeah. Tell us about the investing strategies you've developed and chosen now going forward after years of thinking about it in education. Right. So after years of thinking and education, I no longer do. I have a fund portfolio where I still do individual stocks, but most of my portfolio is in well-diversified globally mutual funds, uh, just tracking the index or so passive index funds at Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, just track the index and of global asset allocation. There is some bonds in it, but then I also do some alternative investments. So I invest in, uh, because of my income, I'm an accredited investor, which then opens up the other options for me. So I'm able to invest in some art offerings, some marine offerings, some real estate syndication deals. And those provide a good enough yield because I never believed in bond portfolios yielding low returns. Uh, I have some treasuries which have done really well this year because of the bond convexity but other than that it's more or less trying to get yield from all these alternative investments like real estate syndication art marine offerings those kind of things so i've kind of kept that as my bond portfolio in addition to that i also have a rental property i bought in silicon valley so the good part about the rental property is that it exactly matches my mortgage so technically although i haven't paid off my mortgage i consider that my rental property is paid off so my i'm living like rent free in my house so you're the you ha carry a mortgage on your primary house, but the rental property is mortgage free. Correct. And so basically, your tenants are paying off the mortgage on your primary house. Right. Yeah. It's I, I think those mental tricks are, are powerful when you can say, yes. okay, I want to buy this, I want to live in this house. So how can I generate an investment that's going to pay for this for me? Because right. I don't want to pay for it, <laughs> but I want to live in this house. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's powerful. And, and that's like true financial independence, right? Like you have a paid off house, technically speaking, where you right. are like living 
free and then you only need to say how much do i actually spend on travel how much do i spend on food how much do i spend on clothes and when you actually add it up it's very little and that expense whether you're in silicon valley or you're in kansas it's the same right. i mean food doesn't cost a lot more right. in silicon valley compared to anywhere in the midwest so right how do you weigh having traveled and worked across the united states how do you weigh the costs and benefits of living in silicon valley I would say for technology individuals it would still make sense to move to Silicon Valley make a ton of money and at some point in time if you think this is expensive you can move out the opportunities you get in Silicon Valley are tremendous uh, like I mentioned I've never needed to ever hunt for a job I've been always quoted and people reach out to me for jobs and then you can keep getting a lot of money you would kind of rent an apartment you would not have your own house maybe initially but over a period of time i think the amount of money you can amass through that route is much greater of course now silicon valley is more diversified so you have options like austin boston other tech hubs in raleigh north carolina which are coming up amazon is opening up an office outside of seattle so those options are there but still i would say silicon valley if you are in technology field you should move there if you're not in the technology field i i don't think people have any business living there i know there are people who work at starbucks who live in silicon valley i would honestly if i was not in technology and i worked at starbucks and th- those were my only skills i would just move out and get a similar job somewhere else I have a cultural question for you. Um I have the opinion that Indians who are smart and who leave India and go where there are more economic opportunities are very efficient at becoming wealthy. Um I don't know if that's true because I've never charted the data on it. I don't know if there are poor Indians living in the United States um who yeah they're from the Indian culture but they just are always right. struggling. but i th- but my anecdotal experience has been that indians do really well in the united states it's been it's been hard for me to find uh, again e- examples of just normally competent people who do come to the united states and um work and and pursue opportunities that they become wealthy um first do you think that's true i think it's more the first generation immigrant who comes over here they understand the struggles and they right. will be careful about everything and be wealthy but culturally i don't think there's anything specific about indians or any other ethnicities uh, so to give you an example like silicon valley uh, and that neighborhood has a lot of people from vietnam some of who came during the vietnamese war but the people who are born there the second or third generation people i meet are more american than vietnamese right. and they are way of living and spending would be more similar to the native americans versus their home culture right and i could see them degrading in a lower level lifestyle versus the immigrants who actually came and the first wave so i i don't disagree with that i i, I totally agree but let's uh, but what i'm interested in is first wave like like first right. wave immigrants because i don't have the same impression for example about guatemalans who come to the right. united states right i've met known a lot of guatemalan immigrants but guatemalans i i know a couple of mexicans who immigrated to the united states who are at upper levels of of income but i don't know any personally i've never met any guatemalans who who experience the um career success the wealth success etc that indians seem to experience so that's that's what i'm focused on is trying to say what are the lessons um from 
the Indian culture? Because to me, it seems to me that here's what I see. You right. tell me. It, it may be easy. It may be hard for you to analyze your native culture. Right. <laughs> right. Because I'm like, I, 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 if I'm sitting <laughs> in the right. ocean, I, I, I see water everywhere. Exactly. I think it's normal. Exactly. So here's what I see. Like, here are the advantages I think that Indians have over uh, immigrants from other cultures. Number one, you grow up speaking English, right? For right. those who don't know, it's my understanding that in India, it's standard that children are taught three languages, India, Hindi, and a local dialect generally. Is that pretty true? Uh, that's true to some extent. So the urban areas, people, the medium of instruction is English, mm -hmm. but not so in the rural areas. So it also depends on okay. the city where you were right. born. So you had the benefit of growing up in an urban area. Right. Your parents had already moved from the country to the city, and you had the benefit of, of learning English, English as a child. Right. That's a huge benefit. It is, because, definitely. Because um, when you came to the United States, you could come as a as a... As a, a professional worker, which right. we'll get to education in a minute, but you had you had to be able to speak English to do that. Whereas somebody who comes from Guatemala right. uh, to take a, a manual labor job doesn't speak English, and so that really harms them. I'm forever desperately trying to get, you know, Hispanic immigrants to the United States. Like, right. you've got to learn English. The very first thing you got to do is to learn English. Um, so that's, that's one advantage. Number two, there seems to be an intensive... Um, culture in India where parents are willing to make almost any sacrifice for the betterment of their children. So parents will work forever. If, if it makes my children better, I'll do it. Right. Right. And a lot of that comes down to schooling and education. Right. In the Indian culture, schooling and education are massively valued. True. Right. And then um, with those foundations, with being able to speak a language, and then the schooling and education and culture, you add that to emigration, where right. it, I, I don't, I have not been to India. Like I, I, I kind of wonder very much what's happening in India. Of course, you got a country of a billion people. How do you even know? But I, I feel like all the smart Indians leave and go <laughs> somewhere else. <laughs> I meet Indian immigrants all over the world, and I often wonder, uh, like, there's got to be a bunch of smart Indians staying, but I, but there's no question that intelligence and skill, then you put it into a, an economy like the United States, right. where the average um, American that's born in the United States succumbs to that second and third generation malaise. They're not right. really hungry. They're not willing to sacrifice. And it just seems to me that that new immigrants who have those benefits right. just wipe the floor uh, with they see the opportunities and they take advantage of them um and i don't know do you think that, that's accurate my, my analysis the, is accurate i think that is accurate and to answer your question with respect to what's happening now in india when i last visited two years ago a lot of reverse brain drain is now happening because good, good. Uh, the Indian economy has opened up. It's now more capitalist and market-driven. So like Amazon has a rival, the Flipkart, which has opened up and giving Amazon like a tough competition in India. And right. Amazon has been trying forever, but it can't gain market share in India. I think similar phenomena is occurring in China as well, where a lot of Chinese immigrants come here, study, and sometimes say, oh, it's better off to go back to China and work over there. So I think that's good, where as each economy is opening up, people are having that opportunity to go back to their country of origin, work over there, and then contribute to that society as well. Yeah, I hope so. To me, it just it, the the lessons are obvious. You know, those things that I said. You made a big point, of, or you mentioned being raised in a stable home environment, right? right? That that that's incalculable how big of an impact that makes on you in time. And then having family that loves you, that supports you, right. that's willing to deal with the, the hardness of your going abroad. Um, it's it's 
I find it very inspiring. Now, if we can figure out how to get second and third generations to keep <laughs> the good things about right. the immigrant attitude, <laughs> right, yes. and not succumb to the malaise of comfort and wealth, right, then then we'll really have something. But I don't know how to do that other than to my theory is that if we deprive our children of <laughs> and and put them into hardship, right. Right, because that, that 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 deprivation and that hardship is the thing that has a formative influence Creates on hunger, new yes. immigrants. Right, right. If you've slept on the street, if you've never, if you've not known where your next meal is going to come from, if you've experienced hardship and want and distress, right, then you recognize comfort and ease and luxury when you see it. Right. And then you look at it and you say, well, this is simple. I just need a good job and True. and save money. And look, this apartment is $500 a month, but this is this is better than I could have had back home for, for you know, this is nice. Right. And so my theory is that there's got to be a way to expose our children to plenty and security, et cetera, but also expose them to hardship and deprivation so they can gain the lessons of both. Because if it's too much hardship and deprivation, right, some guy who's living in the in the, the, the middle of nowhere, India, right. who has nothing but a mud hut, like too much hardship and deprivation can lead to somebody just simply not having either the knowledge that they can have ambition right. or or the ability to do that. You weren't raised in that, right? You were raised in, in relative prosperity, in kind of a middle class, you a roof over your head you weren't right. sleeping on the street sleeping on the streets can be really de destructive Definitely. to the psychology of a human but there's a difference like there's got to be some right balance where yes. we we're comfortable we're safe those basic needs of life are met but yet there's still enough challenge and hardship and deprivation to make somebody feel hungry right and i think the culture which the parents have the ability to push their children and it's not looked upon as strange i think that helps a lot I remember when I came to the U.S., I read the story. Uh, it was called the. It it was a huge deal. It came in the uh, New York Times, which was the battle cry of the tiger mom, and there were like so many comments on that article. And when I read that story, I was like, that seems normal. What the mother did to the Chinese daughters, like playing piano, make sure you study and do all of this. But I, I as I read the comments, people are like, oh my god, what a bad mother, blah blah blah, and I'm like. That does not seem like a bad mother to me. It seems just normal to me, right. but I think that's a huge cultural difference. Well, what's happened is that in the American culture, the individualism and basically um, Americans speaking broadly, especially right. the, the secular elite, like the, the culture makers on, the, on the, the, the left and right coasts, have basically accepted the philosophy that you do you. Right. This right. is the idea. There is no right or wrong. There's no better or worse. What something is right because you want it. Mm -hmm. So you live how you want to live. Well, if that's true, right, which right. people, though, many people accept that as being the basic philosophical truth, that the, 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 the highest and best thing I can do is to express myself, to be myself, to, to let it out. I want to be me. I want to be free. What does right. the, the Frozen song say? Let it go, right? Yeah. Don't be inhibited by, by, by the rules. Don't be inhibited by standards. Don't be inhibited by other people's opinions of you. Let it go, let it go, let it go, right? That's the basic operating philosophy of the majority of the American culture. Right. Secular elite. Now, in that, then you come to child training. Well, if it's right for you as a parent, then it's right for your child. And so parents often then impose that idea on their children that instead of saying there's a process of education whereby I'm going to teach my child 
what he or she needs to learn. Right. It's just simply the goal of education is to let my child's innate goodness flower and let it out. And so my goal is to indulge these things and to indulge them so that whatever their right path is in life, then they'll find it. And so that basic educational philosophy sets the, the difference. Um, in the Indian right. culture, your parents know if you are well-educated, if you're good at math, if right. you're good at science, if you become a doctor and a lawyer, you can have a better life. We want you to have a better life. Right. Therefore, you will study your math. Yes. And that's imposed on you. And the standards are held there. And if you come home with a B, your mom is, is, <laughs> is she's looking for something to teach yeah. you a lesson, right? right? Whereas in the American culture, with this basic concept of a philosophy that says, you're, you're, you're good, whoever, however you are is just the right way to be. Then if my child comes home with a B in math, oh, you just don't like math. You know, that's right. okay. You know, maybe you'll find something else that you like better. And as far as I'm concerned, the evidence is obvious. Just look at the earning ability, look at the wealth oh. accumulation, look at the success in academics. There's no question. Now, again, I, I'm, I'm not, maybe there are times that the Indian mom goes too far, right? Right. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I don't have an Indian mom. But maybe there are times where it goes too far. And maybe there's a right balance. But I'm not in favor of the American system. Um, I don't know if I'm in favor of the Indian system. I think there, again, is an intelligent way to say, no, you're not good enough just the way you are. You're not, oh, you're five years right. old. You don't know what you're talking about. You're yeah. five years old. Like, sit down, learn, and take the instruction of your elders right. without destroying uh, the child and saying, well, you're just worthless because you don't get A pluses in math. Right. And if we extrapolate that, Joshua, to even like the student debt crisis, which is there, I honestly still believe that if someone today in America goes to school for medicine or engineering, they will have huge debt, but they will land a job and they can easily repay that debt. If you go to school to study like pyramids of Egypt, that's a pyramid scheme in itself because you're paying the college and then the only job you can get is being a professor teaching other people right. the same thing. I'm like, what is the value out of it? I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, history is great, but you could just do that, go to the library, check out 10 books, just read it, and then you know the pyramids of history. I'm like, right. why do you need to spend money and thousands of dollars? At the end of the day, I think when people spend money on education, they should be like, what does this contribute to society? And who is willing to pay for my skills, right? I mean, as an engineer, I know that, okay, if I can code, someone is benefiting with that code and is willing to pay me. But if I can paint or something, maybe my painting is famous, but that possibility and that risk is so high that it's clearly not worth taking. Right. Well, it's it's obvious that you're right. But I would just kind of point out, why then do we have the cultural conversation? Well, if you're taught... As a child, as I'm a millennial, right? right? Most of my peers, we have been taught this as children. If you're taught as a child that the most important thing in life is that you are allowed to express yourself, that you're allowed to be you, and that your self-fulfillment is the ideal goal, then that naturally results mm-hmm. in many people, not all, there are lots of intelligent people who made different choices who chose to study something that paid them well. But the natural result is that you try to choose something that leads you towards self-actualization rather than leads you towards profitability. And then what happens is it's very easy psychologically, once you get into a certain groove, just like once you say, 
It's like, I don't go to new car dealerships and look at new cars, right? right? I don't do it because I don't know if I would have the self-control to say no to the new car. I love them. I mean, the technology is great. You go and you sit in them and you look and you're like, man, this would be so much better. So because I don't know if I would have the self-control in that situation, I don't go there. Right. But almost anything in life is is basically the same thing You as going and shopping for cars. If you don't make a decision in advance that I'm going to choose a course of study that will lead to a practical benefit. Right. And you say, well, you know what? I'm interested in pyramids of Egypt. And you go and you find, man, there's this guy who knows everything about the pyramids of Egypt. And you say, look, there are 10 anthropologists all around the world who are making their living on the pyramids of Egypt. I can do that too. And you don't do an accurate analysis of the fact that, look, there are also 10,000 people with degrees in pyramids of Egypt, and they're failing, and they're working at the grocery store bagging groceries. Right. Like people don't really make that analysis and then built upon the philosophy of self-actualization, what would make me happy, Happy, what would make me fulfilled, then you move in that direction. Your mom and dad didn't ask you what would make you happy, what would make you fulfilled. They said study because this is good for you. And then you find out, hey, engineering works, and you figure out how in the context of engineering to find the greatest happiness and fulfillment in the best environment you can. But there's got to be a link of I'm, I'm all for self-fulfillment. I feel very fulfilled doing what I do, right. but there's got to be a good link to the practicality of our decisions. Right. If you separate them, you wind up with a crisis. True. <laughs> yeah, so the choice is only yeah. for typical Indians growing up in India is either medicine, doctor, or lawyer. And right. I, you, you get to make your own choices, but the, it's limited to those choices. So You know, with good reason, though. Yeah. If you go back to, in the United States, there was uh, Tom Stanley was the, an author. He, taught, he interviewed a lot of wealthy people, and he wrote a number of books. And one of the basic recommendations that the wealthy people in his studies would make to their children is right. that their children acquire a professional degree, that their children become doctors, lawyers, or engineers in right. many ways. Even though many of his, cl- of his interviewees were wealthy entrepreneurs, they knew how fraught entrepreneurs was with True. with difficulty and how 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 you're always on the line between success and failure and when it's successful it's nice right but you know all the things that have had gone slightly wrong would lead to failure and they recommend the safe path to their children become a lot do- lot doctor lawyer <laughs> <laughs> doctor lawyer engineer right like they know recommend th- th- these things so so you're not alone and it's it's true right yeah. it, it really is true and i think given the fact that internet has democratized information so much it's hard for me to understand anyone in the u.s even someone who's earning minimum wage ideally if they spend enough time they can set up like a new website on the side they can sell products I, when I was uh, taking my vacation in Thailand, I met so many people from Thailand actually buying stuff from Alibaba, selling it to the Americans on Amazon, just doing fulfillment by Amazon dropshipping, and they are making tons of money. And they have, are not in the US, but they still, just by knowledge of the internet, knowing English, they are able to this arbitrage and just make money. And I'm like amazed that people who live here don't have that entrepreneurship. They will argue with people over Facebook, over Twitter, and like waste time following what the latest Kardashians are posting on Instagram instead of like kind of doing something which will trickle in money, build your skills. And then those skills are useful. Even if it fails, just take small bets. If it fails, you have those skills, just apply to the next gig. Yeah. I don't have an answer for it. I think about it a lot, and I, I try to be thoughtful and not just say everyone's wrong. But right. there, there's there's something about inspiration 
right? If, if, if you don't right. believe that you can do it, um, you do that. There's something about the experiences that people have had. You know, a lot of people are beaten down psychologically. A lot of people have experienced a lot of suffering and that, right. that harms their, their confidence. There's something about character and discipline, doing the hard work. It's great to have an idea. It's hard to execute, to execute on right. them. Um, there's something to be said for um, ability. Uh, there's something to be said for intelligence. Like, I, I do... I've noodled on that for a long time, and I, I still don't know that I have answers. I know that the answers are out there for someone who seeks. You know, I, I, one of the things I wrote down as I was listening to you talk is you demonstrated an interest in the story that you shared. You demonstrated an interest in learning and looking for answers. You recognized, oh, I have money. I have your money now. I have an income. Right. What should I do with that? I don't know why everybody doesn't do that, but I know that most people don't. Like most True. people don't go look for answers. Yes, most people don't. If they're, if they're unhealthy, they don't just keep looking and keep, you know, if a doctor tells them it's incurable, they don't just go and fire that doctor until yeah. they find someone who tells them it's curable. They right. say, oh, it's incurable. Okay, I'm going to lie up and lay down and die now, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's the same thing. Very few people just seem to possess that natural or, or trained knowledge of I'm going to get better at this. So True. I don't know what we do other than try to talk and share and inspire people because I do know almost anybody, whether they're Thai or, or right. Guatemalan or native-born American or whatever, I know that once they get some inspiration and someone lays out a path, then they can they can start to build. Definitely. And I think that's where I decided, even like within Silicon Valley, I've seen so many of my coworkers be stressed. So I said, okay, I should start a blog because all of them come to me for advising, even basic things like what 401k investment should I choose or what should I do with my excess money outside? Should I sell my company RSU stocks? Is it too much diversification risk? So I said, okay, I might as well rather than talk to each person over and over again. So I said, okay, I'll start a blog and start like, typing on all my thoughts. I might, I, might, I might not have all the answers. In fact, I might be wrong most of the times, but at least it fosters dialogue, puts my opinion out there. And if someone thinks differently, I mean, feel free to like come in the comment section, talk about it, and then I might change my opinion and I yeah. might go a different route. So I think that's where I decided to go along this journey. Your blog is financialfreedomcountdown.com. That is Financialfreedomcountdown.com. Um, so you're talking, you're blogging about financial freedom, the things that you've learned, the story that you've laid out, right. uh, and topics on financial independence, early retirement, et yes. cetera. Um, is there anything I've missed in today's interview? Anything you'd like to share with my audience? Um, being a longtime listener of the show, um, is there anything you'd like to share that you wish I'd asked you about, or any just personal <laughs> desire to encourage your fellow <laughs> listeners? No, I think I think Joshua, this was definitely a good thought process, and it helped clear some of the concepts in my mind as well. And it's great after listening to so many episodes to actually meet you in person and talk and be on the podcast. So, ah. Uh, I, I can't tell you how excited I am for all of this. I'm so glad you're here. Financialfreedomcountdown.com. John, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Joshua. I appreciate it.